Um, we've been preaching through the book of Acts. It's been an amazing journey. And I've entitled uh, today's sermon, Speaking to Power, uh, Acts chapter 23. And God uses the most unlikely of circumstances to bring good news of the gospel to the ruling elite of Paul's day. But first, I want to tell you about a young guy who went grocery shopping one day after work. He goes down the aisles and he keeps seeing the same old man. He's like, oh, it's a bit odd. Sure enough, he heads over to the frozen food section. There's the old guy. Then he heads over to the bakery section. Same old guy. And he kind of thinks, what is going on? Is this guy stalking me? <laughs> I don't quite get this. Finally, he goes to the checkout line. And sure enough, right in front of the line is the old guy. And he turns and he says, uh, excuse me, if it seems like I'm falling around, I didn't mean to make you feel uncomfortable. It's just that you look exactly like my son who just passed away. And the young guy was like, oh my goodness. He says, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. Wow, uh, wow, is there anything I can do for you? And he goes, yeah, you know, as I'm leaving the store today, you know, my son would always, always give me a good farewell. He said, would you just say goodbye, Dad, to me? That'd make me feel so much better. And the young guy's like, yeah, absolutely. That's probably the least I can do. As the old guy is leaving, the young guy does his part, and he's like, goodbye, Dad, see you later. And then the old guy leaves. He steps up to pay for his groceries, and the till reads $298. He's like, oh, what's the story here? He goes, I only bought like 10 things. What's going on? And the clerk says, oh, well, your dad said that you were paying for his too. But um, Now, when I started that joke, you probably didn't see that punchline coming. And in our passage today, the Apostle Paul finds himself in a pretty terrible situation. He is plunked in jail. At one point, the Jewish leaders are fighting, having a riot. He's in the middle of it. He thinks he might die. They drag him out of there. And then 40 crazy extreme zealots decide that it's their mission. They're taking an oath and they're going to kill Paul. That is what they're doing. But just like that joke kind of had an unexpected ending, so does Almighty God engineer circumstances in Acts 23 to provide a really surprising ending for the Apostle Paul. We're going to pick up the first 11 verses of Acts 23. If you have your print Bible, I encourage you to use that. It's also going to be on the screen. Well, Paul looked straight at the, at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers... I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, 
My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from the Pharisees. I stand on trial today because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he had said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection. There are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So you must also testify in Rome. Amazing little passage. Now, it's probably helpful to set the scene so we really understand what is in fact going on. Uh, who's who in the zoo here? Who are the characters? Like it says, they, Paul was brought in in front of the Sanhedrin. What is that? Well, basically, it's the first century Jewish equivalent. If you took the Supreme Court of Canada and kind of the Prime Minister's office and sandwiched them together. That was the Sanhedrin for the Jewish people. There were 71 Jewish judges appointed, and a portion of the group were Pharisees. Okay, who are they? Well, they're more like the really strict religious leaders, and their whole focus was keep the law. God exiled us to Babylon four or 500 years ago because we didn't follow the covenant, didn't keep the law, so we're going to try really hard to keep it this time. We're not going to mess this up. And as a result, over time, they became looking down on everyone else who wasn't keeping it as well as they were. That's kind of the Pharisees. The other group were the Sadducees. And they really weren't that concerned about religious devotion at all. They're more, way more into politics. And they kind of kept an eye on the fact that the Romans are running the country and we got to keep peace between us and the Romans. We don't want to tick them off because if we, if we make too big of a, a mess, they will come in and wipe us out. And they were right to think that. It actually happened in AD 70. Uh, the Romans came in and absolutely leveled Jerusalem. So they had some, some good worries there. Now the chief priests were told his name is Ananias, his son of Ned, Nedabias. Now he... The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about him, but we're blessed with a whole bunch of other writings uh, from the first century that tell us about him. So we know that he got his job as high priest in AD 47, and he had it for 12 years. Now there's a Jewish historian, Josephus, and he describes Ananias as one of the most disgraceful profaners of the sacred office. Basically, he was an immoral, dishonest schmuck. That's, that's what Josephus was trying to tell us. And Josephus, in his famous book, Antiquities, he tells us a little bit more about Ananias. He says, he seized for himself the tithes, the offerings that ought to have gone to the common priests so they can live. And this guy just takes it for himself. And apparently he amassed quite great wealth. And he was a person to be reckoned with even after he was no longer high priest. He made free use of violence and even had people assassinated. But he was very pro-Roman. He, he didn't want to upset the Romans. 
and that made him some enemies amongst the Jewish people. All right, now we kind of know the cast. We know the characters. And the Apostle Paul starts things off with a really bold claim. He says, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Was that true? Absolutely. Jesus had arrested Paul on the, the road to Damascus, stopped him, did his, his whole life, did a massive 180 degree turn, and he became a follower of Jesus. And he had been completely faithful. Paul had endured so much and yet never gave up. He always brought his best in service of his Lord. But the high priest, the members of the Sanhedrin, they don't see it that way. They see Paul as a traitor. They see that he left their side and he's now supporting these followers of Jesus, claiming Jesus really was the Messiah, the one the nation's been waiting for. And so this kind of enrages the high priest and he tells the guy in the front, just go pop him right in the mouth. Give him a good, good punch. And Paul kind of reacts because the whole Jewish legal system was set up so that kind of thing wouldn't happen. It says in Deuteronomy 25.1, these words, when people have a dispute, they are to take it to court and the judges, the Sanhedrin, will decide the case acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. See, just like that's the foundation of our law system today. You are innocent until proven guilty. Now, Paul hadn't faced a real trial yet, let alone be found guilty. So they shouldn't be coming up and just punching him, administering the punishment. He's not even proven to be guilty yet. And that kind of causes Paul to react he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, what is that imagery? Well, it's if you think of a stone wall that's put together, but it's really rickety. This thing might fall over. But someone keeps coming and putting fresh coat, coats of whitewashed paint on it. So it looks glossy on the outside, but inside that wall is ready to fall down. Perfect imagery for Ananias the high priest. He says, you sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I was struck. And Paul's right. They shouldn't have done that. But it shows us the depth of Paul's character when they point out, hey, that's the high priest. You shouldn't say that. Paul apologizes. Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now, Paul looks at this scene and he goes, you know what, this whole thing is stacked against me. This is going nowhere. This isn't going to work. And so Paul decides to kind of stir the pot. And he realizes he's got a divided group. He's got Pharisees and Sadducees. And so he just kind of lobs out this statement that he knows will get them fighting each other instead of him. And sure enough, it works. They all start scrapping. They're all fighting over stuff. And, uh, and the Roman governor, Claudius Lysias, the commander, is watching this. And he's watching it get more and more crazy, more and more violent. And he's like, uh-oh, uh-oh, that, that prisoner's going to die in there. And so he gets his soldiers, they go in and grab him, get him out of there. Now, Paul was amazingly courageous. We've seen that all through the book of Acts as we've been journeying through this. He survives earthquakes and prisons and riots and all this crazy stuff. 
And Paul is amazingly obedient to Christ. But Paul's a human being like all the rest of us. He has times where he is going to get discouraged over time. And this is one of those times. I think Paul kind of felt like, my goodness, Lord, what am I doing here? Why am I stuck in prison? Why am I talking to these people? They don't want to listen. And this is when Jesus comes personally and encourages Paul. And Jesus reassures Paul that he will not only testify here in Jerusalem to the rulers, he's actually going to go to Caesarea, the capital, then he's going to go all the way to Rome. And this encouragement directly from Christ just does wonders for Paul. It fills his spirit, it lifts him up. And there's the very practical detail that Paul goes, okay, if Jesus is guaranteeing that I'm going to be in Rome, then I know I can't die before I get there. He's like, okay, I can stop worrying. Uh, Bible scholar F.F. Bruce, this is what he says. He says, this assurance meant much to Paul during the delays and anxiety of the next two years and goes far to account for the calm and dignified bearing which seemed to mark him out as a master of events rather than their victim. You see, that, that moment where Christ came and encouraged Paul, that set him up for the next two years. And he's exactly right. You're, we're going to read the rest of Acts. And Paul is just like he's calm. He's settled. He knows for sure, God's got me. Now, how does that relate to us? Well, we are coming through the tail end of a pandemic, through all the craziness of the past two plus years. And I think a lot of us wondered, okay, what is going on? Churches can't meet. Is God doing things? Is God still at work? Even though there's tons of rules, tons of restrictions, what is actually happening? And our staff got to go to our Fellowship Impact event a few weeks ago, and amazing conference, and they produced some video stories from around the province. And uh, our denomination is... Uh, one of our churches is Village Church, and they've become probably the fastest growing church in Canada. Got five campuses in the Lower Mainland, one in Calgary, one in Winnipeg, trying to plant one in Toronto, and the goal is one in Montreal. So they're, they're a going concern. And one of the women that attends uh, one of the village campuses in British Columbia, uh, she uh, was, like all the rest of us, stuck home watching church online. And God did some amazing miracles through it. Her name is Lori, and this is her story. Years ago, when I first started this online game, I had no idea of where it was going to go. I had no idea that it would become a tool that God would use to speak into the lives of people around the world. Almost five years ago, my son started an online game, a phone game, that he wanted some help with. I felt that I would get involved. Uh, he started me up in the game, and then over time, um, I found that I could also help with some of the issues that came up in the game, because a lot of the people who play are younger. They would make errors when dealing with other people, so I would just start helping them to resolve conflicts. You know, when you are obvious that you care about them, you know, people start communicating with you more. 
as things would come up in their lives, I would offer to pray for them. It, there was one guy that I met, he shared his background, and he lives in another country, and he, he was rejected by his parents when he was a child, you know, and, and he lived, you know, sort of out on the street, and he needed someone. He just didn't have anybody in his life. But it was neat because I'd have people from areas around the world, areas around the world that are hostile towards Christians. And they would be able to ask me questions. They would be able to find out not sort of what they hear about what Christianity is, but from a person, a real person, who is living it, you know, what, what difference does it make to my life? You know, and to be able to communicate that, I just, that's where it grew beyond anything that I ever saw. As church went online, I really felt God calling me to find an online church. Through the game, I didn't, I didn't have anywhere to take them to church. You know, I, I couldn't say, oh, well, why don't you come with me to church on Sunday? You know, because they're in the UK, they're down in the States, they're in South Africa, you know, not even our time zone is, a chain, is the same. So I was talking to this friend and she said, well, have you tried Village Church? They had just started an online campus. And then over time, I started mentioning it to some of the people I had wanted to invite to church, some of the people who weren't churchgoers, but who were really open to it, that were in my game. And over time, we started watching it. You know, today, I have a group of ladies that we watch church together every week. A lady that I met years ago in the game. We got to know one another through the game, and we got to be very good friends. We just started sharing a lot more time together and I started trying to help her uh, just with some of the struggles that she was going through. She's walked quite the path, uh, but the happy ending or happy beginning to this story is that she's going to get baptized. And it's such an amazing thing to see an online game help take her there. There's such an opportunity. There are so many online communities. With COVID, when all other ways of contacting people went away, and this one didn't, you know, I think that the communities were just made stronger. As Christians, we need to be there. You know, we can't take a large part of our world and, and a direction that the next generations are getting into more and more, and we can't afford to ignore it. I love that story. God using some unlikely ways to reach people during COVID. So personally, the, Jesus comes to the Apostle Paul kind of at the worst moment when he's down in the dumps, when he's discouraged. He gives him this amazing message and it carries him through the next number of years of his life. And I want to tell you this morning, church, everyone watching online, it's okay to pray that. So to gave to pray, Lord, I see what you did for the Apostle Paul in prison. Lord, whatever avenue you want to use in my life, maybe it's a turnaround in circumstances. Maybe it's, maybe it's the encouragement of a long-lost friend showing up. Maybe it's the, a real powerful realization of your presence in my life. Whatever it is, Lord, I need that from you now. That's an okay prayer to pray, and I encourage you to do it. There was a guy named G. Campbell Morgan. He was a famous English preacher, 19th century. 
And he had an interesting comment about that exact verse in Acts. This is what he said. He said, if I were asked to express the teaching of this paragraph from my own heart, the phrase, the grace of the Lord Jesus, comes instantly to mind. He ever brings us in our hours of darkness the cheer of his nearness. When he does, prisons become sanctuaries and dark nights become golden days of sunlight. Not beautifully put. Man, you, you live long enough, long enough and at some point things are tough, things are hard. Night feels like a prison. And he beautifully says prisons become sanctuaries. Dark nights become golden days of sunlight. What makes the difference? It's when Christ is right there beside us, encouraging us just like he did for the Apostle Paul. All right, the story continues. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion says, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They're ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone what you have reported to me. entitled this second point, Relative Help. Now, the Sanhedrin will not be denied in their vengeance on Paul. And this 40-plus group of extremists is ready to kill him. You know what? This is religion at its worst. It should have given them pause that the God they are trying to please, the God whose reputation they are trying to defend, is actually the God who says right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. As we saw in last week's sermon, though, this is a lot less about pure devotion to God and a lot more about nationalism, defending and preserving their nation and their culture. John Calvin has a powerful observation about this. He says, here we see that God counters the plans of the ungodly as though by a flanking attack. He allows them to devise many schemes, but in the end he shows in the nick of time that he is laughing out of heaven at the evil things that men on, are busy on earth doing. And the Bible also declares that. Proverbs 21.30 says this, There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. In this case, God uses Paul's nephew. Paul obviously had a sister that lived in Jerusalem. 
And the way prison worked in the first century was the prison didn't make the meals, bring them to you, give you a TV, an exercise area, none of that. It was up to the relatives of the prisoners. So if they were going to keep the prisoner alive, the relatives had to bring them food or clothing or whatever they needed. And so God arranges that on one of these times, somehow this nephew overhears the plot. You can almost picture him. He's around the corner hiding so no one can see him. And he's overhearing this plot. So he comes to Paul, tells him to, and Paul calls the centurion. Ends up the nephew is called aside with this Roman commander, Claudius Lysias. And Paul's nephew reveals the plot. And the commander knows he has to take action. Now, he tells Paul's nephew, don't tell anyone, because he didn't want word to get back to this group of 40. Now, as you hear all that, you may wonder why, why does a Roman commander care about one Jewish dude? Like, why is that a big deal? Why is he even going to try and stop it? What everyone was so upset about would have kind of remained a bit vague to Claudius. He's, he's Roman. He probably speaks uh, uh, Latin as a Roman. And he obviously knows enough Greek to get by, but he doesn't know the local language of Aramaic. And that's what Paul's been speaking to the Sanhedrin. He, Paul's given his testimony twice in the preceding chapters, but Claudius still wouldn't have understood it. He wouldn't have been able to hear it. All he would know is it's something to do. They're fighting about their religious beliefs, and I can't quite figure it out. So why does Claudius care so much about trying to keep Paul alive? Well, he knows, Claudius knows, that it's his job to keep peace in Jerusalem. He knows he's got a kind of a powder keg situation here. It can blow up at any second. F.F. Bruce adds some insight. He said, Paul's life was plainly not safe in Jerusalem. The Tribune could not afford to be responsible for the assassination of a Roman citizen. Paul must be set at once under a strong guard to Caesarea. He would be safer there. He'd be under the responsibility of a Roman procurator, the whole Roman province of Judea. Now, here is the amazing thing. God was ensuring that every single group of leaders all the way along got to hear Paul's testimony. That's why I've entitled the sermon, Speaking to Power. Now, this group of 71 judges, kind of the top of the Jewish nation, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they ultimately didn't accept Paul's testimony, but they heard it from him face to face. And they could never deny, they couldn't stand before God and said, well, you never sent anybody to tell us. They couldn't say that. God had sent Paul right into their midst. Now, as God engineers circumstances, Paul's going to be taken to where the Romans were kind of running the country from, Caesarea, and he's going to get incredible opportunities in the chapters to come to speak to kings and rulers Ultimately, Paul's going to go to Rome, to the very heart of the Roman Empire, and he's going to boldly testify. You see, God had engineered that the testimony of Paul would be taken to the ruling elite of the whole first century of the entire Mediterranean world. I think that's remarkable. That's amazing. And as Jesus promised Paul, he is ultimately 
going to take care of them through all of that. You know, that is the history for 2,000 years of how God works in people's lives. We, have, we serve a God who continually brings silver linings out of really hard things. You know, our country, we love it. Canada is amazing. But as it becomes more and more secular, I think we should be praying that God would raise up a modern-day Apostle Paul, somebody that can boldly and articulately speak to power in our day. Well, Paul's journey doesn't end there. Let's find out what happens in the final act. We're going to pick it up in verse 23. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to, the San, to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out the orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the, ca- let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they had delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. All right, lots going on here. Now, if you've attended church for a while or you might have heard the the second half of the Bible is written in Greek. People have been studying it for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So there's not too many words that show up in the second half of the Bible that haven't been translated. But one of the few is here in Acts 23. And you'll notice in verse 23, it says, Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. That word in Greek, dexialabus, is literally right-handed throwers. And no one actually knows what that was. There's speculation. It could have been like little small spears that they could throw at a distance and really impale somebody. It could have been like a sling. Those were pretty common in the first century warfare. Guys got really good at throwing these stones or lead balls. Whatever it was, if there was 200 of them and they're throwing missiles at you, pretty intimidating. So if you think about this force, you got 200 Roman soldiers, 70 cavalry, and 200 guys either with javelins or slings. That is a pretty formidable force, all to protect one guy, Paul. Now, 
if Paul had just shown up and said, I'm pretty important, I'm pretty amazing, I need safe conduct to go to Caesarea. Can you get a little small army around me? They would have been like, what? Are you kidding? No, that's a complete joke. Who are you? No. But God has engineered things so that Paul gets an escort of an entire army. I mean, to attack that, you'd need like a thousand men. That's crazy. So they travel these 35 miles to this little town. Um, the troops, obviously, once they got outside the city and they got far enough and they realized we've made it past the 40 guys with the plots. Okay, troops, you can go back. The cavalry can kind of take it from here. And so they have Paul on a horse. They ride to Caesarea and they hand him over. And they hand the letter over. And it's pretty cute. In verse 27, the commander kind of twists the truth. He massages it slightly. He says, this man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him. For I have learned that he's a Roman citizen. Now, if you've been reading in the chapters before, we learned that that wasn't quite how it played out. They already were attacking him. The commander goes in, gets Paul out, and was about to torture him. And that's when Paul says, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. The guy's like, ah, we can't, we can't touch you then. So why does that matter? Because I think that's pretty consistent with how soldiers behave all the way to today. That if you get to write up a report, you want to make yourself look good. And that's what he did. And I think it's those little details that always give us confidence when we read the Bible. You know what? This thing's accurate. It has the ring of truth to it. So the cavalry gets Paul safely to, the, to Caesarea into the hands of the governor and the last verse is the one that really caught my eye. Acts 23, 35. It says, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Now this was the palace built by Herod the Great. And you're thinking, Herod the Great? I've heard that. Who is that guy? I know that name. Well, you know it because every single Christmas we talk about Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. He's the one who entertained the wise men, tried to trick them, tried to find out where Jesus was going to be born, eventually figured out it was Bethlehem, sent some troops. They were too late, but they slaughtered a whole bunch of little male baby boys there. Now, here is the great irony that roughly 55 years after those events, after the birth of Christ, Herod attempting to kill baby Jesus, which he was completely unsuccessful at, now one of Jesus' most amazing apostles, Paul, bringing the good news, planting churches all over the Mediterranean world, is brought into the very heart of the palace that Herod built. And we're going to see in the next couple chapters, Paul gets an incredible opportunity to proclaim to the whole court, to the king, to the governor, all these people in power, his testimony of what Christ had done. He gets to proclaim the good news of the gospel. What an amazing reversal. See, we serve the almighty God who all the way through history reverses things. We serve Jesus Christ who through love and self-sacrifice 
turns the things the world thinks are so powerful into the very vessels of his will. I love that. God is constantly turning things upside down. Voltaire was a French writer in the 18th century. He was a writer and philosopher, totally despised the Christian faith. Here's some of the things he wrote. 1764, he wrote the Bible. That is what fools have written, what imbeciles commend, what rogues teach, and young children are made to learn by heart. He says, we are living in the twilight of Christianity. And finally, in 1767, a few years later, he wrote to Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia. He wrote these words, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion has ever infected the world. My one regret in dying is that I cannot aid you in this noble enterprise of extirpating the world of this infamous superstition. Well, not a fan, clearly. Now, in August of 1836, only 58 years after Voltaire's death, Reverend William Ackworth of the British and Foreign Bible Society went to Geneva, Switzerland. And he actually got to go in to Voltaire's house. Now, Voltaire's residence had kind of gained a measure of fill. That's a pretty nice place, actually. And it had its own name. It's called Les Delices. I don't know. That's terrible French. My wife can help me out. Les de Seal. Anyways, it had a name. It was so famous it had a name. And it's being used as the repository for Bibles. The house was owned by Colonel Henry Tronchin, who served as the president of the Evangelical Society of Geneva from 1834 to 1839. Voltaire's house became the thing in Switzerland to proclaim the gospel. You see, church, that is the God we worship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God always turning things upside down. From the Apostle Paul getting an opportunity to proclaim the gospel in that palatial palace built by the very guy who tried to kill Jesus to Voltaire's old house being used to distribute Bibles. And here is the point this morning. Listen to me, church. You think your situation in your life is impossible. You think you are in too deep for God to turn it upside down and reverse it and bring something amazing and beautiful out of it. Think again. Trust your life into the hands of the loving Heavenly Father and watch and wait for the miracles He will do in the life of anyone who commits wholeheartedly to him. Amen? Amen.